Hey guys, and welcome to the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. The first podcast to bring you the local fishing report for Alabama's lakes and rivers, whether it's good, bad, or ugly. I'm your host, Nick Williams, and this week's show is brought to you by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. Are you frustrated by your typical hunting and fishing magazines? Are you tired of reading content meant for guys up north or in the Midwest? Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't hunt and fish in your home state. Pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription and become a better southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, or you can save and buy online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. Alrighty guys, before we jump into the report this week, we've got a really cool opportunity for you. We've partnered up with Aftco and they're now offering all of our listeners a free sun protection mask with any purchase of Aftco products. Aftco makes a ton of great products for all types of anglers. All that you have to do to get your coupon code is to text ALFFR. Again, that's ALFFR for Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report to 779-345. 2918. Again, just text ALFFR to 779 345 2918. Subscribe to our email list and we'll send you the promo code via email. Alrighty, guys, welcome back to another week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report. Want to take a quick second to apologize here lately. I know this time of the year, uh, fishing is slow for a lot of people. Water's up and high, everything's cold. People are kind of recuperating from the holidays and the end of the year kind of getting ready to reset so we've been lax on actually delivering fishing reports but i'm happy to say we're back in the swing of things today i have jason whitehead from up on the tennessee river system and he's here to talk about some exciting news in the freshwater fishing world jason how you doing today sir good buddy doing really well well good good well you uh I, i know it's starting to warm up people are starting to get frisky uh let's let's start first the question on everybody's mind what are the bass doing uh, they are coming. Thankfully, we got some some nicer weather days the last two weeks or so. We've got some days that have bumped up there in the 70s. The water temperature has gone from in the 40s and Main River being 50 degrees. To the, yesterday, I was actually out and uh, put the boat in the water and checked the backwater bay, and it was actually up to about eight, uh, 58 degrees in the back of one of the creeks. So it's like, thank goodness. Now we're, we're all in that swing where springtime's coming. So it's about to uh it's about to get really fun really quick. That's it, man. I've been out in my yard. I've been looking and the jasmine's blooming, the red maples, the violets, like I'm starting to see some dogwoods pop up already down here on the coast. Like it's you can feel it in there. The birds are singing. Uh I saw at a pond yesterday we had some black bellied whistling ducks are already up here, done migrated back up. This is we're at their, you know, northern range. So like according to the ducks at least, it's uh winter's over. They're they're here in their northern range. So tell me more in your opinion. I hear different things from different people and, and I know there's a general consensus on the spawning temperature, but what in your mind, what water temperature are you looking for for pre-spawn conditions? Are we there or are we still a couple weeks out? We're we're still a few weeks out and not every fish in the lake is going to pull up and spawn at the same time. You know, there there's waves of fish that just, they, they got their little cycle and their deal, and some of them are later and some of them are earlier. Now, on specifically on Gunnersville, you have fish that live shallow year-round. I mean, they're just there in three to four, five foot of water. If the water temperature is sub 40 degrees, there is a day that you can go out there and you could catch fish in three foot of water. They're just fish that live shallow. 
Me personally, I think the bulk of the fish are going to live out a little bit deeper. And in those waves and how those fish transition, of course, the ones that live shallower are going to be in that water temperature that's warming first because they're already there. It takes a long time for the water temperatures to stabilize. And and, because just like yesterday, like the main river was still 51 degrees, but I saw 58 degrees in the back of the pocket. Those fish that are on the main river, they don't know that the back of the pocket is 58 degrees. So it's more stability, I believe. As much as water temperature, I think something 60, 62, 63 in that area and the, the way back to the creeks, but it needs to get that way for a couple of days. And once a couple of days set in where that water temperature consistently stays warm, if not gets a little bit warmer, then those fish really start to make that push. But that consistency over the amount of three, four, five days of warmer weather, that's what it's going to take to get the the main surge of spawners, like that big wave that you always hear everybody talking. And last year, that didn't happen until the end of March, 1st of April. Yeah, it seems seems to be coming on a little bit quicker this year. Um, and I know it's it's always you know you have your fall springs and 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 stuff like that. But I think this is definitely going to shape up to be a warmer a warmer year quicker. What advice would you give people to to get ready to kind of capitalize on that? What's what's your strategy look like usually this time of the year? Right. The good thing with springtime, and you can go to Guntersville right now, man, and you you can catch fish on whatever whatever you want to. If you want to go drag a jig or throw a swim bait or throw an A-rig out there in 20 foot of water, absolutely have at it. There's fish there. If you want to go shallow and pick up a, a chatterbait, a rattle trap, a pinko, I mean, anything, speed worm, something like that, and go shallow in two, three foot of water, you're going to catch fish there. So that's exciting, much like it is for everybody to know, okay, I can go to the lake next week. It's not the middle of winter. I don't have to specifically do this type of pattern let me go try something that i might you know just trying to learn something you know because i mean times are changing i was on a podcast the other day talking about live scope we wanted to get into that again but with with times changing like it is somebody can go and say okay look i want to go try something like that but even if that's not working for them they can pick up a spinnerbait or a chatterbait and go shallow and still catch fish and have a successful day so so it sounds like to me the the, the big message is just go fishing now is the time just go fishing. This it's that time of year. It's that time of year to to start getting really excited. Get all of your boat together. Get your tackle done. Go pick up what you need. Try some new baits and just. And, and we've been really fortunate the last you know this year so far. Other than that ice mix last time I was actually on uh, with you, we were. Uh, I was man, I was going nuts there for not being able to get out of the house for four days. Since then, I mean, we've had a, we've been very fortunate with the weather that we've had the last few weeks, and it's been really, really, really nice. For sure, yeah, it, it's definitely in the air, and I'm, I, I love times like this because uh, this is the time where knuckleheads like me can actually get on some fish and feel good about themselves. So, <laughs> well, tell me, switching gears a little bit, what, uh, what about crappie? What's the status report on them? Yeah, so the crappie are kind of the same way. They are, uh, the bridges are just getting better. Does the fish are starting to make that transition and the bulk of your fish uh, are leaving the main rivers, they're leaving that deeper water, they're working their way back in the creek. So the bridges are going to continue to play, you know, till April. I think the crappie are going to go ahead and slide on up a little bit because mainly, we, so two, three days ago, we started early morning. It was that day, I can't, it was, it got really warm. I mean, it was 74, 75 degrees. And we had started out deeper, 30, 35 foot fishing some structure 
And then we literally followed the school of fish throughout the day. There's a massive school of fish. We just followed the school. By the end of the afternoon, 2, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, those fish started in 35 foot. They ended up in 12 foot of water on a day that it was warming. So they're starting to move. They're starting to roam. They're starting to ease their way up, which is also exciting because you can, as you're fishing, you may be bass fishing one day and you come across an area that's just loaded with crappie too. So you, you could... They're making that transition also working their way up their shallower. Now, the idea with those, much like the bass, is early mornings, you want to start in a little bit of the deeper water. And then as the day progresses, as the day warms up, the sun gets higher, you just slowly start shading your way a little bit shallower. So start in that 12, 14 foot range, and then you can ease your way up in the six to eight foot edge of the grass line, scale beds, humps, you know, target harder bottom, because that's where those fish typically tend to spawn at on that harder bottom so some offshore humps and points and that type of stuff if if somebody told you that they wanted to go out and spend a day on the water and they wanted to target both fish target bass and crappie uh, is there a particular strategy that you would have to target both of them not really you can go i mean a reason catch fish like a, a crappie will eat a, a quarter ounce half ounce rattle trap i mean we've been out throwing swim bait catching bass or chatterbait or something like that but it's it's kind of paying attention to grass too. If you come across an area that's like, man, that just what's that look like? Kind of looks like a brush. It's just a big school of crappie, and there those schools are big. Like if you see them on it, even a two D side scan, down scan, they're just big schools of fish. Um, but just sand casting some of those reaction baits. If you catch a crappie in that area, I guess what I'm trying to say is, if you're throwing a rattle trap and you catch a crappie, there's more of them there. It ain't just that one. So that may be time to, hey, I think I got a jig in the boat. Let's re- let's Make a couple of casts right here with a jig, kind of fan casting around the boat, see if we can catch some more of them, because they're they're not alone. Well, and I guess my question was mainly, I'll, I'll try to rephrase it, but like, is, is there a place that you can fish where is the day shifts, like you talk about fish moving throughout the day as water temperature change, is there a place where you can start off catching bass and switch to crappie or, or vice versa or is there like uh, a specific area of the lake? yeah like a, like a type place where where you're running into both and like like so a, like an analogy is like is like down here on the coast you know like as the tide comes in i got places where i can sit and before the tide hits you're catching bass and as it comes in you're transitioning over to catching speckled trout and redfish like that sort of thing yeah so your your biggest creeks on the lake your town creek north saudi south saudi brown seabold those areas like that that have that are the largest biggest spawning bays and the larger creeks they'll also have a little flow in them too but i mean you can that's what, how i learned to fish the lake was i picked the lake apart you know one creek at a time but yes the main feeder creek so there's still some that get off the side smaller pockets and smaller creeks but those main the main larger creeks on the lake is definitely where you want to be this time of year give me the scoop i know down here locally all of the the kayak fishing tournaments and the bass tournaments down here on the delta are starting to really pick up what's going on as as far as that goes up there where y'all are at oh holy cow man i mean there's there's multiple tournaments every weekend i mean it's springtime on gunnersville the lake's getting a ton of pressure we went through an area a couple of days ago just with some chatterbaits and stuff and we followed boats i had i had two different clients in the boat and we were all throwing a, a couple different colored lipless baits and only one of us got bit and they were all well all three of us were going red but one of them had a little chartreuse on it and that was the one that got eaten and that was in a really popular area that gets fished a lot so it could be something as simple as even with a as pressured as the lakes get in springtime don't be scared to 
to swap up baits and continuously change throughout the day because just one day you're just going to find that color and go behind 10 different boats and catch some fish. So, I mean, the, the lake's busy, but I wouldn't I wouldn't let that deter you from getting out there just because there's a lot of boats there. I mean, we had, what was it, uh, the Toyota series, I think, uh, last week. It was Wednesday, Thursday, no, yeah, I mean, the Rattle Trap Tournament was right after it. So you had the BFL, then you had the Toyota, and then you had the Rattle Trap Tournament. But even the Rattle Trap Tournament, after the 260-boat uh, MLS Toyota Series, there was still quite a few bags over 22 pounds weighed in. So even with these big tournaments, there's still fish out there to be caught. Give me your thoughts on, because I know, you know, we get pretty crowded down here just because Mobile and Baldwin County have had such a huge population explosion in recent years. But I know Gunnersville is, is just one of those kind of meccas in the bass fishing world. Is there any other insight you can give people for, for how to stay stay sane and stay successful uh, when, when the pressure really starts to pile on? Because I know everybody wants to be out there catching bass in the springtime. What's what's your best tips for getting out there and, and getting in there with the crowd and finding success? Typically, it's slowing down. Just slow down because everybody, 90% of the people, if you were to go to the boat ramp tomorrow, 90% of the people out there are going to lock a rattle trap in their hand. They're going to rock a chatterbait in their hand and they're going to cover as much water as possible, which is not a bad tactic to do it. You can do it. You can absolutely do that. You can catch this. When it gets really busy, like a weekend, Saturday, Sunday, you can go through those areas and, and just slow down. Just slow down because you're throwing baits and thinking outside the box. You're throwing baits that nobody else is throwing. You know, go to a silent rattle trap. Nobody throws a silent one. Everybody throws one with a whole bunch of rattles in it or one knockers. Go to a silent one. Throw a blade bait. The blade bait has as much vibration as a chatter bait, but still has the action of a lipless. Like, just kind of think outside the box. Go back through those areas and just be thorough. Because so many people are going to have the trolling motor set, you know, six, seven, eight on a dial, and they're just burning, covering a bunch of water. So there's fish that, you know, grass. They're burning a bait over their head. What about the ones that are in the grass? Nobody's fishing for them. They're only fishing for the ones that are on top of the grass. Definitely, definitely a good tip. Slow down a little bit. That's it. That's it. You got you got all, everybody listening in, the year is young. You got all year to catch bass. Slow down a little bit. Yep, just slow down. Because you may get in one area that's just loaded with them. Just absolutely loaded. And you can stay in that one general area all day long and and have a day of your life type situation that's definitely good advice and and yeah if you catch one fish i've I've always been told that's a uh you find what you're looking for slow down and catch the second one he's probably not there by himself exactly exactly he ain't, he ain't there for no reason there's some more around there somewhere that's it well i know uh i know you fill up quick but for folks who are looking to maybe this year schedule a trip uh what's a good place for them to get a hold of you jason uh they can look me up online alabama elite fishing guide facebook instagram uh, my phone number is 256-530-3306 that's really the best way to reach me if you do call me or send me a text during the day just be patient with me because i am booked out a little ways and i typically try to get back with everybody that evening after i get off the water and get back home there we go guys y'all definitely if y'all are looking to uh to get on some of them Tennessee River System Lake Gunnersville Bass and Crappie this year, y'all hit Jason up. He knows what he's talking about. Jason, as always, I appreciate you being on the show, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you so much. Good luck, guys. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by the Alabama Fishing Show. The all-new Alabama Fishing Show, sponsored by Monster Marine, is coming to Gadsden, Alabama at the venue at Coosa Landing on George Wallace Drive, March 8th through the 10th. The only true fishing show in Alabama, featuring all things fresh and saltwater fishing. If you fish, don't miss the latest fishing gear, equipment, and apparel. 
Custom tackle, lures, rods and reels, electronics and guides, March 8th through the 10th. $12 for adults, $8 for kids. Kids five and under are free. Tickets are available online or at the door. We've got free parking. Learn more at alabamafishingshow.com. Hope to see you there. Don't miss the Kids Fishing Tournament on Saturday, ages 4 through 12. Don't miss the event, March 8th through the 10th. Alrighty, guys, for our next guest, we got the man, the myth, the legend. We got Dip McMillan down here on the Mobile Tennessee Delta. Dip, how you doing tonight, sir? Doing pretty good, Nick. How about you, buddy? Oh, man, I can't complain. I'm not having near as much fun this evening as what you're going to have, but uh, I'm I'm doing all right. Tell tell our listeners what you got planned for this evening. <laughs> yeah, about the next hour and a half, I'm headed to Stockton, Alabama, to take my old coon dog to go trail a few coons tonight. Sounds like a good time. Just be careful out there. It picked up here in the past hour. It's gotten windy up in Stockton. Might might blow the coon out the tree if you get one up in there. <laughs> yeah, I've seen a little band of lit up showers about to come through there. Um, It's winning down here in Lockwood, too. So, um, But hopefully, I look at the radar. It shouldn't be nothing bad. Hopefully, it'll be moving right out the door. No, it's going it's gonna to blow on through. What you been doing? I know we just talked with Jason Whitehead up on Lake Gunnersville, and they are, man, just on fire. Like, he was sending me pictures, and it was making me slobber at the chops looking at it. I know we're still kind of high and floated up here. Uh, you been sneaking out doing any fishing lately, or you just been coon hunting? Well, mainly coon hunting. Um, but Sunday was my first time back on the water, like I said, like a month and a half. And all I was basically doing since the river's flooded, it was still high Sunday, but it was it was enough. It was down enough I can take my boat out. And um and I was just running, just scanning, using my electronics and just see just get everything back on pace for this coming up weekend. Um like I said, everything was muddy and stuff like that. But I did throw it out at a couple of fish I seen on my screen and I caught about nine or ten. But like I said, that water was dingy and I mean not dingy, it was just mud. But this time of the year too though, them fish is eating crawfish and I didn't have no crawfish colors in the way. So but like I said, I was just out there just making sure everything working right. But hopefully I can sneak out there Friday morning for all this rain come in and looking at my notes, Nick, um this time of the year, those fish are feeding on crawfish big time. So I love to use a a Cajun cricket in a in a color that sort this time of the year just imitate a crawfish. That that's interesting to me. I know I know bass and catfish down here are big on crawfish. I've caught a lot of bass on crawfish crankbaits early in the year, and I've caught a lot of catfish on limb lines baiting them with crawfish. But I I wouldn't have figured crappie would get after a crawfish. I figured crawfish might be a little too big for them, and you don't you don't really think a crappie is feeding off the bottom. That's that's new information to me. I wouldn't have figured on that. Oh yeah, man, that that crappie would destroy a small crawfish big time. I mean, just I I cut tons of crappie open, man. It just covered with crawfish. Is it is it like the the little ones, like before they get their hard shell, or yeah, the small ones. They they small. I got you. I got you. Well, that's good to know. I wouldn't have never thought about throwing throwing crawfish colors out there for crappie. Uh, yeah, you was you was talking about keeping uh checking your notes from last year. It just popped up a reminder, like the one year reminder that they do on your facebook feed there's a picture of me and my wife back before my daughter was born we was out there on the boat and catching some crappie back up in the creek shallow this year and i'm i'm guessing if you get out this this friday before you know we get to rain and it's going to push the water back up for a little bit or are you mainly focusing this time of the year trying to get up it seems to me like i have the best luck when the water starts to clear up down here getting up in the little feeder creeks in the delta those seem to clear up earlier 
Is is that been your experience too, or what's your strategy? Yeah, absolutely. The creek around here is going to um, clear up a lot faster than the um, the big lakes and uh, and especially the main river. So, like you said, the feeder creeks. I mean, yeah, uh, they'll be they'll be cleared up. Should be cleared up right now. To be honest with you, that's where I'll be focused on Friday. And then the water temperature this past weekend was like fifty eight to fifty nine degrees. So, with this mild temperature this week, that water temperature should be hitting sixty degrees at least the low sixties. Them fish should be in, man. I ain't lying to you. Them fish should be in at least seven to ten foot of water. And they should, shouldn't be on structure right now. They should be just roaming, just getting ready to go on fire, man, on the bank. So it all, it almost close, man. We just need to keep that river stage down just a few more weeks. That's, that's what I think this time last year, looking at the picture, I could see I was running a, we were in about what you said, about six to eight feet of water. And, not getting up on them schooled, but we was just sitting there kind of trolling with a trolling motor, just kind of casting, retrieving, searching with a uh, roadrunner jig was, was what we were catching them on last year. And, and like you said, we weren't exactly just hammering them, but we were catching a few here and there. What What's your strategies for them right now? Like, are you vertical jigging for them? Or are you casting for them? Or, or I know you big on live scope. Is that, that how you're finding them when they're in the creek spread out like that? This time of the year, too, and it's, and it's good right here for everybody. If you don't have live scope and you got a spider rig on your boat, that's a that's a game changer. That's that's just charm. I got the spider rig off my boat right now, but Friday that spider rig may be back on my boat. This time of the year, those fish get um like I said, suspended in six to ten or six to eight foot of water, and they just everywhere. So you can just troll. If you're in six to eight foot of water and you're trolling five to six foot man vertical, you can just destroy them fish on um, jigs and, and minnows too. But I prefer jigs this time. Um, unless they're on the banks and then I pitch with them um, with a live minnow fishing about a foot, two foot deep. But man, spider riggers this time of the year is very, very effective, man, catching these fish. And you can sink a pole with a live scope and catch them one by one, but. Man, some fast action with that spider rig, um, and I got a um, I I'm using um four poles on each side. If I'm using all my poles, it'd be eight. But you couldn't keep up if the fish biting like they should be Friday. Like I said, if that well ain't fast, you couldn't keep up with um eight poles. So I probably start out with four to six poles because it should be on fire. That's good to hear. You mentioned them getting up on the banks, and and we did a real cool special segment a while back with John Harrison out of uh out of mississippi talking about fishing for them in the flooded timber and grenada lake so so two questions for you one is there anything that you look for that tells you that they're going to be up close to the bank and then have you ever done any fishing in flooded timber here in the delta i have one time at um that boat yard and when i say flooded these fish is all i mean in the woods i mean you just basically just pulling yourself in the woods and dropping down on cypress trees and stumps like that with a cork but like i said friday if i don't find them um i just don't believe them fish are going to be um on the banks friday i just think they're going to be like you said earlier six to eight foot of water but um if i'm fishing on the banks nick i try to target nothing but cypress trees and cypress maize they're my go-tos and they are leaning over trees that you have to pick that get that cork up on that tree limb with heavy cover them use a game changer is it is it a, a water level thing or a water clarity thing? Temperature, time of year. What what makes you start looking for them up up close to the bank? 
this time of year temperature. March, like I said, late February, not like we're in March now. I would say we're in March. So March and mid-March temperature. That temperature get around 65, 68 degrees. A man, they they going to be on the banks. And they're going to, I'm telling you, I mean, fire every throw. That's good to know. I've been working. Me and a buddy are, are working. We just got our membership to uh, Fly Fishers International, the Gulf Coast Council. And a uh, main reason that we did it is they do a sun catch slam where you try to catch as many different species of sunfish as you can. And they got black crappie and white crappie on there. So I'm, I'm going to be trying to do a little fly fishing for them this year. I already caught one. I caught a black crappie. And it's a lot easier to fly fish shallow than it is to fish real deep, or at least that's that's how I find it. So uh-huh. I'm, I'm excited to have them, have them coming up and getting into some shallower water where I can play with them. And I got to ask you this. I feel like we've discussed this in the past, but I know down here I tend to primarily catch black crappie. And that's, that's what I caught first when I started fishing for them. Have you got any tips for, for folks down south who are looking to get on white crappie it seems to me like I, I see more of those just in pictures that are coming from like up on the tennessee river and stuff i know we have them but they don't seem super prevalent down here in my experience you'll see in my pictures too um i catch all my black crappie from right now to all the way until the end of may when may hit or the first of june when that when that hot when them hot temperature hit i go to the mobile river and fish all the way up to the john big bid to alabama and that's where Mainly in this area, that's where your white crop is going to come from. The um, boatyard land and um, over there, Mount Vernon, Three Rivers Lake, um, all those, all those um, particular areas, that's where your white crop is going to come from. Um, that Tom Bigby, um, the upper side of the Mobile River, and the Alabama got those big, huge white croppies. Um, that's where I focus on on the um, in the in the summertime. Um, but now on the tinsel, you do you catching one here and there in Mifflin and uh, Mike Reynolds and Dennis. I mean, but like I said, Nick, I caught I don't know how many limits last year, and um, in those limits, I probably caught one or two white crappie in each trip. So you don't you don't like on the ton baby, you go catch a limit, and ninety percent of them gonna be white crappie. Same thing on the Alabama. You just got more white crappie than on the tinsel. Do you have it? So that's I live on tinsel, which which is everything tracks exactly with what you're saying about about catching mostly black crappie. I'm glad it's not me just being crazy, but uh, it's weird to me that you get on the other side of the swamp, you just go a few miles, and it and it changes that drastically. Do you have any Change. personal? Yeah. Do Do you have any personal theories as to why that is? Is it like a dim- difference in like habitat or, or like what what would I heard it be from the old schoolers they said the sandy bottom that's what i heard from the old schoolers so i don't know how true that is but that's how i heard from the old timers it's the sandy bottom on alabama and the tongue big bit in the upper mobile i i mean personally i don't know if that's true or not but i do know when you go up there and know the area north of there it's nothing but white crappie, and I'm going to tell you, son, you get into some two-pounders, two-and-a-half-pounders. I mean, it's some big fish. I get, I, I can believe that because here where I'm at, you know, Tensaw Lake, you know, it's all it's all backwater. There's not a lot of current, and there's definitely not a lot of sand down there. Uh, absolutely. It, you got to have you got to have current to keep sand, it seems like. So I'll, I'll keep that in mind. I'm going I'm to hunt me up a white crappie on the fly ride this summer if it takes all year. But, uh, well, that's, that's good to know. I know that you're getting ready for a coon hunting trip. I always appreciate you coming on the show. What, what you got planned this year before we let you go? What you got planned for Dippy Outdoors this year? I know I, I went by Miss Becky's place and I picked up a hat a couple weekends ago. I've been rocking here and there. And I appreciate you, buddy. Yeah. 
we got um end of this month. Well, like I said, it's about to be March tomorrow. So um, hopefully the end of this month, I want to say the 27th, we'll have our hopefully our first Dippy Outdoors crappie tournament. That's an open crappie tournament for everyone that um contribute to the big huge kids tournament in August. So every month we we'll try to have leading up to August, we try to have a uh, a Dippy Outdoors open tournament for the um crappie tournament for the um. That, like I said, that's a good benefit for the kids tournament in August. And the ones that ain't been following us, we have a huge kids tournament in August. And this year, I think it's going to be August 11th at Hubbard's Landing. Everything's free for the kids to eat free. Um, they get tons of rods and reels, um, all kind of prizes, man. Last year, we gave away three or four basketball goals, um, a couple of kayaks, Yeti coolers, Yeti buckets. So these kids take home just tons of prizes. And in the winter with the big fish, we get it mounted for free. And a matter of fact, I got to go pick up the winter fish. They got it at Hubbard right now, so I got to get in touch with the, the guy that um, the little kid that won that last year. His fish is available right now. So it just tons of prizes for all the kids, man. So we got to spread that word big time. And um, last year, I think we had 133 kids. Hopefully this year, we're going to get the 150 to uh, Mike, 200. So we're just getting this thing started, man, and we're just blessing these kids tremendously. There we go. Well, that's good to hear. It's a, it's always fun to go have a fishing tournament. It's even better when it's for a good cause. Uh, hope that it keeps. Hope that it continues to grow. I've enjoyed watching it grow. Appreciate what you're doing for the local community, guys. If y'all are listening in, get involved. Get with Dip. Uh, how? What's a good way for folks to get in touch with you, Dip? You can reach me up on Facebook. My name is Dip Dip McMillan. Or you can um, reach me up on Dippy Outdoors. Um, my phone number and all that contact information is on there. It's on Facebook, Dip Macmillan or Dippy Outdoors. There we go. Well, guys listening in, y'all go check that out if y'all are local to the Gulf Coast area. And Dip, good luck this evening. Send me some pictures. Sure will, Nick. Thank you again for having me on, buddy. Absolutely. This week's episode has been brought to you by Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks offer numerous items to help get your project done right the first time. They carry a variety of different panel profiles in your choice of colors and gauges with all the matching trim and accessories. They also offer a full line of hardware items and post-frame building design. Their friendly and knowledgeable sales representatives are always willing to help answer any questions or concerns you may have. Contact them with any questions or to get a free estimate today. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. All right, folks, welcome back for our final guest this week. We're going to be talking with Nicholas Conklin with TFO Rods. Um, I had the pleasure to get introduced to Nick up at the Atlanta Fly Fishing Show. Peter Jordan down here on the coast of the Lost Angler Fly Shop was also in attendance there. Um, ran into him, and he introduced me to Nicholas. We're going to have a good conversation today talking about everything Nicholas knows about fly fishing rods, which is a whole lot more than I know, so y'all stay tuned. Alrighty, guys, welcome back. Fishing's still kind of slow here on the freshwater on Alabama's lakes and rivers, so we've been catching up with some different folks. Last week, we had Tina Morrison with the Greater Gadsden Area uh, Tourist Group talking about some of the rainbow trout fishing that we have up in Gadsden. We talked with Dan Spangler with Berkeley Baits. Um, we also, we've had some conversations with Georgia DNR about some of the different slams. I was actually in Georgia here this past weekend uh, at the... Uh, Atlanta fly fishing show had a really good time uh, bumped into Peter Jordan from the lost angler fly ship he was all the way up there 
uh, attending that event as well. Definitely a fun event. Y'all should check it out next year if you didn't make it this year. Uh, today's guest was somebody that Peter introduced me to up there. We're talking today with Nicholas Conklin uh, with TFO. He's their fly fishing product category manager. Uh, Nick, appreciate having you on the show today. Uh, thank you, sir. Appreciate being on. It was nice to to meet you in Atlanta there. Absolutely. What uh, what'd you think about Atlanta? Is that oh, your first great. time? Uh, nope. Been doing Atlanta. Had a TFO booth there, I want to say four or five years since we moved over. They shifted the show from Salem, North Carolina. Um, so done that show a number of years and it's always a good crowd. It's a good young crowd too. Um, educated anglers. Um, you know, we do everything freshwater and saltwater. So it's fun to, to meet and talk with people that have both interests and, you know, go from the mountains to the beaches and just a good crowd and good energy. And it was a, it was an enjoyable weekend. For sure. No, I had a blast. And that's also something that I noticed and, and something that I find encouraging, um, both at the Gadsden show that I was at and at the Atlanta show, uh, the, the fly fishing group seems to be trending a little bit younger uh, than I guess like your general fishing outdoors demographic. So that's that's super, super encouraging to see young people involved in it. It's a lot of a lot of fun. Uh, I'm rapidly getting to the point where I'm no longer the youngest guy in the room anyway. Uh, but I know but the you, feeling. So yeah, yeah no, you, usually at outdoor events, National Wild Turkey Federation banquets and stuff like that, I'm used to being the youngest guy in the room. But at the fly fishing conventions, it was encouraging to see a bunch of guys there that were, you know, in their in their teens, twenties, early thirties. So, well, well, tell me, tell me a little bit. I know we we talked a little bit at the booth, but you were you were kind of working. I was there mixing business with pleasure. I didn't want to tie up too much of your time. Uh, I know you're from Texas. You're kind of a Gulf Coast native. Uh, what, what do you usually fish for? Are you more of a freshwater or saltwater guy? Oh, a little bit of everything, to be honest with you. I kind of the, uh, the luck or the pleasure, if you call it, of having a lot of opportunities to fish, fish everything, freshwater, saltwater, not native to Texas, actually Texas. I've only been down here about 12 years. I grew up in Michigan originally. So started off doing all that freshwater stuff, trout, steelhead, largemouth bass, smallmouth bass. Um, since moving to Texas and being able to spend more time in the Gulf, I've really I really enjoy it. Enjoy the beaches. So redfish, speckled trout, tuna, sharks, you name it. But I get, uh, again, I get the pleasure of kind of traveling all over and being able to work on a lot of different rods for a lot of different techniques and locations. So I'm a little spoiled in that regard. For sure. What got you into fly fishing uh, specifically? So I started fly fishing. I was about eight years old. I'm only in my mid thirties now. So I know it's not a long period of time, but I think it's an important thing to share with people. Just getting into the sport. Started out probably like most folks. Got the uh, life jacket on standing at the end of the dock. I grew up again in Michigan and had the pleasure. My family had a house on a about a 60, 70 acre private lake. So I had a lot of freshwater fishing opportunities, lake fishing. Then across the street was a small branch of a pretty well-known river up, up uh, kind of near northern Michigan. So I got to experience a lot of the trout fishing, steelhead fishing. And again, I was about eight years old and I just decided at that age I was going to be involved either in the fishing side of it, right, whether I'm writing about it, taking pictures of it, or on the on the product side. And since then, I've kind of taken off. But that really started when I was pretty young and, and started with the uh, the Snoopy pole and a bobber and has now expanded into uh, designing and developing fly rods for all over the world. So There we go. Tell me more about that process because I, I find that interesting. Um, what What's kind of is the is the product manager there with TFO? What, what's your day-to-day look like? Yep. So product category manager, a lot of words for basically saying I, uh, I handle everything on the fly fishing side of the business. So, you know, initial product design and development into its sales and then, you know, sunsetting it. Um, so I work a lot outside of products with our sales reps, with our dealers, both domestic and international. 
Um, then I also run all of our shows and events. So really pretty much anytime you see TFO at a, at a fly fishing show or even some of the conventional shows, usually I'm the one building the booth and, and pacing around talking to people. So general, just general management and development of the program is kind of what it boils down to, but a little bit of everything. There we go. Well, well, we got you on today to, to talk about fly rods, and I'm, I'm really excited about this. Um, we've had some more fly fishing guests on here recently in the past year on the show. That's really something that's took off down here in, in my part of the world is like warm water fly fishing, the guys who are chasing bass, whether it's, you know, your traditional largemouths or the guys up on the Tennessee River chasing smallmouth bass, the guys uh, that are chasing Alabama and Kentucky spotted bass. Uh, of course, we've had Matt Lewis on a couple of times talking about red-eye bass. Um, so we've we've got lots of different bass, lots of different people fly fishing for them. But we haven't really had people on to talk the technical side of gear. And I know fly fishing goes as gear-centric and as technical as, as you want to get. You can go down that rabbit hole, I found out, as, as far as you want to go. There's no bottom to it. And some of our listeners are going to be fly fishermen. Some of them are, are kind of fly curious. Um, so I think we'll have a lot of folks in the audience that this will be a helpful conversation for. Kind of the topic today is is choosing the right fly rod for you. Um, we have, like you talked about, you know, this is mainly a freshwater show. We got some listeners who also listen to our Alabama saltwater fishing report, folks who fish like myself and like like you that fish freshwater and saltwater. So you have a really diverse range of fishing you can do, right? You can fish for like um, up there north where we were in Atlanta. You can get into little bitty six-inch brook trout. You can get into panfish. You can get into bass. You can get into you know, specks and reds and jack crevels, sharks, whatever, you know, so kind of talk today about choosing the fly rod for different, for different scenarios that anglers may have, kind of wrapping your head around terminology and, and how to choose a fly rod. And, and I guess the biggest thing to start with when I, when I first started fly fishing and was looking at choosing a rod, I ran into the word weight. And, mm-hmm. and that was new for me. I'd always heard of, of rods. I knew how to look at the length and, and the power and the action and stuff like that. But fly weight was a, was a really novel concept to me. Can you, can you kind of give me in layman's terms what that is? What, how, how do people know what they're looking at when they see the weight of a fly rod? What does that mean? Yep. So, you know, one important thing to kind of talk about since you're going to reach and we're going to talk to spinning rod anglers, casting anglers, as well as fly anglers, is there's a lot of parallels between the techniques. Um, as someone that does both frequently, I think a lot of that gets lost in translation when talking about fly rods, about fly reels, the whole fly fishing process is there's a lot of back and forth and there's a lot of similarities, right? You mentioned action and power, which makes plenty of sense to most conventional rod anglers, right? For whatever reason, kind of gets lost in translation on the fly side and all you ever really hear about is action. So, you know, talk about a fly rod's weight you know, with a conventional rod, spinning or casting on a red rod, right? You have that couple inch lure, that's where all your weight is. And that's really what's loading the rod along you to cast. Fly fishing, right? You have a much longer section of weighted line, right? 30, 40, even up to 50 feet. So you can kind of break it down or simply think about the weight of a fly rod as the weight of the fly line needed to move a specific size of fly. And all fly lines have, you know, weighted weights and grains, right? Which you know, got to make it difficult, got to do grain. So kind of an antiquated measurement system for, for us anglers, but every fly line is weighted in grains. And in order to, to match a fly line to a fly rod, we try to keep it simple at TFO. You know, you kind of almost think about, think about it as a lure rating on a rod. This is the ideal weight you need to load this rod effectively and to eventually unroll, unroll the fly line and deliver the fly. 
I think that, and that's definitely what for me was the easiest way to, to think about it was comparing it, like you said, to lure weight. I mean, I've got a lot of seven foot rods and they've got different actions, but um, I've got one over here that's my catfishing rod and it, it says on the rod blank, it'll throw a two ounce chunk of lead, you know, for catfishing. And then I've got a seven foot rod, that's a, a crappie jigging rod and it'll throw a, a one thirty seconds of an ounce jig. So mm -hmm. I think that'll be intuitive for a lot of our anglers. What... And, and again, you got to keep in mind the the weight too. the The weight of a, the physical weight of a fly is so much different, so much lighter than a than a typical lure, whether it's a freshwater lure or a saltwater lure, right? I mean, you're around 140 or so grains for a tip for a standard five weight fly line, and that's maybe a quarter of an ounce. So you're what you're dealing with is a much lighter set of weights than you would typically on on the conventional side. So some again, some of it's confusing, but if you kind of break it down, think about it. How do I load this spinning rod? What type of weight do I need? Hopefully that makes it a little bit easier to, to connect the dots there. For sure. Yeah, you're casting the line, not casting the weight, which is the opposite of what you're doing with, with conventional gear. And I would definitely hate to do the math and, <laughs> and figure out what fraction of an ounce it was to hurl a little size 16 parachute atoms at a bluegill. That would uh that kind of gives me anxiety just thinking about trying to calculate that and put that on a scale and weigh that. I'd much rather go by fly line weight. So, it's, uh, it's a mental gymnastics. That's why I kind of <laughs> chuckled to myself when you say talk about your typical day. I mean, I was explain I was explaining or trying to probably poorly the difference in grains and grams to a dealer from Iceland today on one of about one of our TFL rods. So a lot of that comes up, and as a non-mathematics person, yeah, there's some uh, there's some back and forth sometimes, and again, doesn't need to be as hard as it as it's made to believe it is. As somebody who used to work at an archery counter, we do a lot of stuff. You know, the oh, arrow building <laughs> world is done with grains, and uh, we we had the little talking about dealers. That's what it looked like was a drug dealer scare there that we would, would weigh <laughs> arrow components with and try to build arrows and. I had several days early in the morning before the coffee kicked in where I found out halfway through weighing a batch of components that I was, somebody had changed it to grams instead of grains. And I was like, what are these numbers? Those don't make any sense. <laughs> yeah. Funny so, thing. so what, just, just kind of in general, what are people looking at? I, I guess there's several questions rolled up here into one. What do you think, if any, is there kind of a general, you know, one size fits all or, or one size fits most, like general weight, like if you're going to buy your first fly rod, um, something that kind of lets you do cover the widest range of the fishing spectrum. And, and then if you were going to pick up, say, another couple of fly rods to kind of kind of round out your quiver, so to speak, what, what would you recommend people get? Like, do you start, like I know for trout fishing, a five weight seems to kind of be the standard. Um, I know a lot of inshore guys are going with an eight weight. What, what, what do you like? What's, what's kind of your go-to for fishing where you're at? You know, typically what I recommend to anybody, I mean, it could be here in Texas or, you know, I'll probably give this recommendation next week in Seattle is a nine foot five weight is about the standard. Um, this, that nine foot length, excuse me, is kind of the standard. Again, that comes down to picking up and repositioning line, not always about casting distance. And that's something that gets a little misconstrued in fly fishing that people assume the longer or larger rod you have, farther you can cast. Mm, kind of yes and no. Uh, the five weight, that seems to be the most middle of the road in the freshwater world that allow you to throw a couple different styles of flies, you know, even up to your one or two inch streamers down to some smaller dry flies. Typically, the most one of the most versatile weights. And then you also hear about a nine foot eight weight. And again, that's just going to give you more mass, more grainage, and fly line allow you to deliver some heavier flies. Um, so a five weight and an eight weight are kind of the two great start, starting points. And then from there, you know, I like to always suggest if you already have a five weight or you have a four weight, whatever it is, if you already have it, 
maybe look about two rod weights difference. That'll really kind of separate it. You know, you're starting to split hairs. So, you know, should I go with a three or a four or a four or a five? Well, maybe spread it out a little bit if you already have a rod and you're looking to looking to grow that quiver. Um, but with a five weight and an eight weight, for the most part, you'll be able to fish just about anything, freshwater or saltwater, you know, with some exceptions. I won't take, a, take an eight weight offshore to go catch a yellowfin, but, you know, anything inshore, even some of your nearshore stuff, you can get done with an eight weight. So, you know, about a two rod spread and a five seems to be the most common, most popular and most effective freshwater type of fly rod. You, you touched briefly kind of in that response to talking about the length. And I know um, it seems like for most of your conventional rods, seven feet kind of seems to be an average, you know, uh, mm -hmm. there's people go a little bit longer. There's people that like a little bit shorter rod, depending on what they're doing. And you mentioned that nine foot length. Um, is there any time when it's better to go a little longer or a little shorter with a rod? Yeah. And I mean, you can think of your nine foot five weight as your 705 spinning or casting rod, right? Kind of middle of the road, do it all. You know, and, the, and one of the reasons that nine foot length has become so standard is, again, because of the length of the fly line, the ability to pick it up and reposition it more efficiently typically is done a little bit more effectively with a nine foot rod. Doesn't mean it can't be done with a shorter rod, but there's trade-offs, right? Like everything in fishing, there's trade-offs to a shorter rod or a longer rod. Where a longer rod, think of a longer lever, again, is more efficient at picking up lines and repositioning them. Where a shorter rod, shorter lever, really becomes a more effective fish fighting tool. So if you do get into a saltwater environment or in a situation where you're fighting fish vertically, shorter rod, make that whole process a little bit easier. Most freshwater scenarios, right? More of a horizontal fight. So you don't always need as short of a lever. You know, that shorter rod really comes into play on the freshwater side if you're in tighter cover, right? You got a bunch of bushes, a bunch of trees around you. You you don't need to cast as far. So trade-offs to everything, but it'll really kind of come down to where you're fishing, what you want to do with it. For sure. I, I feel like the length thing is is easier to understand than, than weight for sure because it kind of correlates into existing knowledge that anglers already have. And I feel like the same maybe applies to action. Is it kind of the same trend in the fly fishing world? Like it, it seems to me like nowadays you just walk into pick a big box store and you walk in and, and everything is going to be that that fast action. Like that seems to have gotten really trendy right now. You you don't find a lot of moderate, moderate slow actions anymore with conventional rods, which I understand, you know, fishing styles change. People want different things. But I know that's something that I find myself looking for a lot of times is a little bit slower action rod. Is, is that whole, you know, fast action trend there in the fly fishing rod world, or, or do you have more people using more of a full flex rod? I would say there's there's two points to that. I think a lot of people are beating over the head saying you need a fast action rod, you need a fast action rod, but never really gets articulated where, where that's an effective action, right? Again, go back to the conventional world. Modern action rods are really great for a lot of techniques, right? A crankbait rod or anything with a treble hook. You kind of want something that's not going to be overly fast, but also not overly stiff, right, to ensure a good hook set. Where fly fishing is kind of screwed up, unfortunately, is everyone gets told they need a fast action rod. Well, one, you know, there's a reason we make a lot of fly rods. It's not just to make a lot of money. Same with any other company. It's because <laughs> anglers have a lot of different personal preferences, and we all need to make different rods that suit different styles. Where the Again, where the fast action thing kind of falls through is if someone can't really effectively load a moderate rod or a slower rod, just giving them a fast rod, regardless of scenario, is not going to help, right? You know, one of the common misnomers is, oh, you're going in saltwater fishing where the scenario, things are going to be much windier, much more intense. You need a real fast rod. Again, if it's not the best style of rod for the angler, they can't load it at 20 feet, then just giving them that type of tool is not going to 
solve the problem, right? They're not going to be able to cast any farther or cast more efficiently in the wind. Ashen gets a little bit screwed up, but the other component, which you touched on earlier, which the conventional world seems to get is the power or the level of softness and stiffness, right? So that's a, just another kind of caveat to the to the fly fishing game. That's important, again, depending on your technique. When I was with Peter and down in Atlanta there, we talked a lot about Euronymph or high stick style rods, right? Really kind of precise technique where most people would favor a fast action, right? Because you want a rod that's going to recover quickly. So as you're fishing little tiny jigs and nymphs, you feel that uh, that strike, you can set the hook quickly, but you also don't always want a very stiff rod, something a little bit softer because you're generally fishing lighter tippets, again, smaller flies, and you want to ensure a good hook set. So you can have a fast action rod, right? Or a rod that bends in the top third of the blank or moderate fast action, kind of that middle third, or even something more moderate closer to the handle. But you also have to be thoughtful about the level of stiffness, level of softness for kind of what you want to do. Again, typically more moderate style rod, something a little bit softer is an easier rod to get into. One, because you can feel it load, kind of get some feedback, right? All right, am I carrying enough line? Am I making my stops correctly? All those little nuanced things that result in an effective fly cast. Overly fast rods that are also very stiff, take a little bit more timing, take a little bit more practice, and don't always give you the immediate feedback. So for something, someone that's a new angler or intermediate type of angler, just getting started or even further in their career, there's a lot of different actions and styles. So it, Again, I hate to say it because it's a cop-out answer, but it's it comes down to personal preference and picking up different rods and getting the feel that's going to work for for what you enjoy. And, you know, one of those things that will likely change over time. So, For sure. Yeah, I know, I know what I've considered to be a good conventional fishing rod has changed multiple times over the years as I've spent more time fishing or as I've changed where I fish and how I fish. Talk about personal preference. So something a friend of mine got me into, he encouraged me to try a fiberglass fly rod and... I've always been a graphite guy with my conventional rods. He talked me into a fiberglass rod and I got one. And as I started casting it, I kind of, I like it. Loads a little bit slower. It's a little bit more relaxed. Um, seems like I'm not as bad about slapping line with it. Uh, Cause I'm, I'm still a very, very poor fly caster. Talk about personal preference. What about you? Have you kind of jumped? I know that's kind of becoming a trend in the fly fishing world. More and more people going back to fiberglass rods, bamboo, stuff like that. Are, are you still a graphite guy or are you coming coming back around full circle to fiberglass? I'd have to admit most of my my fly fishing's done on a graphite rod. Um, I'm a little bit more of a spastic, faster caster. So I like something. <laughs> um, but again, it, you know, it depends what I'm doing, right? If I go tuna fishing or doing something for billfish or sharks, you know, there's some, some cool rods that are done as a composite, right? So you get the benefits of a carbon fiber rod for casting, but then you have the fish fighting benefits of something that's glass or, or an S-glass, E-glass type of composite. So it really just depends. Um, depends on what I need to do and type of tool I need for the job. For sure. Yeah, I know uh, it got me to looking at them. The only rods I think that I really have on my rack that are glass are my big catfish rods where uh, it kind of makes you feel better to have a glass rod when you're tangling up with a big 40, 50 pound blue cat or something like that. And you know that that thing will flex all the way down into the handle. Uh, I've, I've never broke the tip on, on a rod like that. So it, it kind of gives you the warm fuzzies when you're fighting big fish. And it's cool to see the, the technology kind of cycle back around, right? Yeah. People it's fishing bamboo it, again and fishing glass <laughs> again and old reels and, you know, know. 
Yeah, if you if I've I've joked a lot of times, like when I grew up hunting, I had the old Woodlands BDU camo and Mossy Oak Bottomlands because that's what I inherited from my great uncle. And uh, it all wore out. I mean, got threadbare and, and just ratty about two years before it circled around. And now Bottomlands is back in style. And, and that's, you know, all the rage. And if I could have just hung on to my old stuff another couple of years, it would have come back and been trendy. And I probably could have made a pretty penny off of it selling it on, on classifieds. But uh, that's that's the way it goes sometimes. I know I'm, I'm starting to see that. Like I was looking on eBay the other day and some of them old fiberglass rods that a few years ago you know, people would have laughed off. They're starting to fetch a pretty penny if they're in good shape. Oh, yeah, they're coming back around. I think people are realizing that, you know, as great as technology is, sometimes it's it's cool to bring back an old school rod or old school reel and kind of, you know, remember some of the fun you had with it when you first started off. And that's a that's always an important thing and not just fly fishing, any type of fishing, right? For sure. Well, another... Kind of remember how, where you started and how you started and... Yeah, for, for sure. And, and talked about that, <laughs> talked about getting started kind of circling back to that you know bobber fishing on a dock uh, i've got a daughter and and we're starting to fish together and and something that i'm starting to appreciate again about them them fiberglass e-glass s-glass rods is that uh they hold up a little bit better you know they're a little bit less prone to getting that tip snapped off or we're getting a scuff in them and starting to come undone or you know, getting pegged with a piece of split shot or a clouser minnow or something and, and shattering. So I've I've started looking at that and having a little girl that fishes and my wife fishing with me, like I've I've gotten out of the stage of my life where I just wanted to buy cheap fishing gear. And now I've started to look a little bit closer in, you know, is it possible? Can I buy fishing gear that'll be around that I can pass on to my daughter and, and hopefully her kids, you know, like I've started picking up a little collection of the old, uh, you know, Swedish-made ambassador reels and stuff like that, right? Looking for something that you can service and that'll be around for a minute. How do you do that with a with a fly rod? What do you look for? What What's the difference between, you know, a $70 rod? And I know I, I saw some rods uh, there at the convention in Atlanta that I'm just not going to say what the price on them was because I'm, I'm still trying to process it. I know you can spend as much as you want on one. What makes a good rod? And and then kind of too, like at what price point do you consider to be actually getting into a, a good quality fly rod? Well, the price point conversation is difficult. I mean, this is a leisure time activity. Sure. It's leisure time money for everybody. Um, so I'll be a little bit sensitive on that. But like, I mean, we uh, I consider it a, it's a tool for a job. And I'm sure everyone listening here has bought many tools. And, you know, you try to save a little bit or go on the cheap end and you know, this tool lasts for only so long and then you have an issue, but there's uh, there's value and there's reason to spending some serious time understanding what your budget's going to be and what you want out of it. Um, you always recommend, too, if someone's going to be extra hard on gear or if that's something they are going to use constantly, you know, look at a company's warranty, look at their parts and service and dig a little bit deeper into just what the retail price is. Um, you, know, you mentioned ambassador reels. I've still got some of the first casting reels. I bought probably around age eight or 10, you know, at that time they were $120 casting reels, which was a lot. I don't know what they go for now, but I've had them well over 24, 22 years. So, you know, spend some time thinking about what, what it is you want to spend and what you want to do with it. You know, one of the unfortunate things about fly fishing is because there's such a barrier to entry relative to price that people get a little nervous, maybe spend a lot of money on something that isn't really what they need, isn't really what they like. And they put the rod in the closet and never fish it again. Yeah, that doesn't really do anybody any good. And it's it's an unfortunate thing to hear and, and see, you know, talk to people at shows that say that. So in terms of durability, you know, you could you could dig really into the materials and 
how rods are made, where they're made, things like that. But, you know, set a, set a realistic budget for what you want to do and what you think is, you know, going to be your, your fishing, fly fishing life for the next year, two years, even three years. And again, don't go hog wild. There's a lot of great companies that make rods that are pretty highly priced, but you know, just, I always implore people, just try to be a little bit realistic about the first couple of years. doesn't mean you can't move into higher end products or grow into products, but, you know, don't always expect that a $70 fly rod and real combo is going to going to get the job done for a long time, you know, some trade-offs. For sure. And then too, something that I, that I always like to ask people when we're talking about gear, you know, talking in broad strokes, kind of helping people choose. I know that's kind of the, the type of consumer I am. I want to go do my research and, and find out exactly what I'm getting into. I'm usually a pretty picky shopper, but I, I got friends who, especially when it comes to bow hunting, like they'll call me up and be like, Hey man, I'm buying broadheads. Like I'm fixing to go deer hunt. What do you shoot? Like, what, what should I get into? You know, they're, they're just want to press the easy button on it and move on to the next thing in their life. Uh, if you got, you know, if you were talking to somebody who like me, like a lot of our listeners, you're just a, a deep South warm water fly fisherman. Uh, is there a particular rod or a particular lineup that y'all have at TFO? That's kind of your warm water series. You have a model that you'd recommend people to just in a, in a general sense. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, no different than uh, buying a bow or anything in the hunting world. People have to kind of keep in mind, you can't just walk up to a rod rack, put down the money, and all of a sudden have the skills, right? So it's sure. this is one of these sports, right, that you have to commit, excuse me, some time to it, learn how to effectively cast and, and work on some of those skills. And again, don't just assume that because it's got this type of price tag, price tag, you know, you're going to all of a sudden be an excellent caster and be catching all kinds of fish all over the world. So Again, like any sport, you've got to you've got to work on it and develop those skills. But if I was in your area looking for a uh, maybe a small water type of rod, um, TFO, we've got a couple great lines. You know, the Pro Three series is one we've had in our in our family of rods for almost 30 years now. We're on our third iteration, and again, going back to the action, it's a moderate rod, not very stiff, so it's going to load easy up close. Really great learning tool and something. You know, I say it's a learning tool. It's more of an entry-level rod. I can't tell you how many people I've spoken to over the years that that's been their favorite series and rod, a rod they bought several of, and you know they're not really interested in getting something faster or stiffer or really expanding too much because they found a found a tool that works for what they want to do. So you know, the Pro uh, Pro Three series is a great way to look at, as is the Blue Ribbon. Um, that might be an interesting one for some of the listeners too, because those rods we have rods in the Blue Ribbon series. They go all the way down to seven and a half feet, a couple eight footers all the way up to 10. So it gives you a little bit more flexibility on the size of water and the technique you want to accomplish. But like anything with a fly rod or even a fishing rod, you know, best advice is to go to a shop, cast a couple of them side by side and spend some time playing with them. You know, you're only going to really figure it out until you cast it, you know, put a line on it and cast it and try not to look at what's on the label. Just uh, play with a few rods and find the one that's going to work for your style and, and what you enjoy casting. Yeah, I can I can definitely attest. Uh, I think you and Peter both mentioned that blue ribbon and uh, that little I forget if it was a seven or a seven and a half foot two weight, but uh, I really liked that little rod. I, I think I was telling you like most of my fishing nowadays is just on on the bank with my daughter in tow. And uh, I've really enjoyed fly fishing for panfish, and I was sitting there kind of getting the feel for that one, and uh, definitely a nice rod. And and I was I was really happy. With the quality of it, just looking at the eyelets and the grip and just the little details, like it was a really well put together rod and then it really was very modestly priced compared to a lot of the other stuff that was sitting there around it at the convention. So I think y'all definitely got a good one there. And I've heard a lot of good things about the Pro 3 as well uh, from some of our local outfitters. So I'm I'm working my way through. I kind of bought my, my entry level rod 
my, my, my big box store cheapy to kind of just see how I felt about fly fishing. I've been doing it for long enough and enjoying it enough. I'm looking to kind of make that next purchase myself. So, well, thank you. The, the blue ribbon was a fun project and it's a pretty well loved rod all around the country and even with our, a number of our international distributors. So I'm glad to hear that, but you make a good point as the, uh, the entry level combo kit. I mean, that's a great place to start. And I always think people should just take some time and, and think about where they want to go with it and then move up as they feel comfortable. Yeah, I think I think there's something definitely to be said for for making your entry level purchase and then and then holding off on buying a, a high end tool until later. I know I've been duck hunting now for about twelve years and it wasn't until this year that I finally dropped the money and and bought a, a nice Italian made gun. You know, because yeah. because I'm at the point now where I've shot enough guns. Like my first year duck hunting, I didn't know what I liked. You know, if you'd have handed me two or three grand and said, "Hey, go buy a shotgun that you like," I, I wouldn't have known. Uh, yeah, no, no, af- no. After a decade of wing shooting, you kind of get to the point where you start to form your own opinion, and uh, you may shoot my gun and you may not care for it that much, but that's all right because I've I've been shooting long enough to know what I like. So I think there's something yeah. to that. And not everyone, yeah, gets a Benelli Super Black Eagle too to start off, right? So it's something to work your way up in. And sometimes you stumble across a, a rod or a shotgun, whatever it is, like that. And that's the one that you enjoy and, and fits your style and kind of listen to your instincts on that one. That's it. Well, well, Nick, I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Uh, if folks want to learn more about different rods, do you, you got any good resources you can point people to? Absolutely. You know, obviously the best resource is head on over to your local dealer. Ideally, it'd be great if they're a TFO dealer, but if not, <laughs> Go to your local dealer, you know, talk to some of the shop folks and you know, ask them what they prefer. Ask them to cast a couple different rods side by side. You know, if you're going to be looking for a rod, a reel, whatever it is, and fly fishing for a specific area, and you know, maybe go out with a guide and kind of pick their brain and say, you know, why do you like this type of rod, this type of reel, this type of line, whatever it is for this area. You know, I'm going to be fishing this river and I want to just learn. And I think you'd be surprised like most things in, in the outdoor world, people want to share and help people out. So, you know, a local shop is always a great way to go and just uh, spend some time asking questions and you, know, you can learn what you can learn on, on the internet, but the in-person communication is great. Go to a, you know, go to a fly show if you have one in your area and just ask questions and do a little research and go from there. There we go. And and for our local listeners, Peter Jordan down there at Lost Angler Fly Shop, he's a TFO dealer, got a good selection and just one of the nicest guys that you'll ever meet. Uh, he'll he'll go out of his way, bend over backwards to help people out. So definitely go go check him out if you're local. Nick, again, really appreciate having you on the show. Uh, be safe on the road. I know you'll be traveling and then uh, good, good luck this year once you get back into fishing season. Hey, thank you very much. I appreciate speaking with you as well. Absolutely. This week's episode has been brought to you by Hilton's Real-Time Navigator. The days of heading out and blindly looking for good fishing areas are pretty much over. Don't waste time and money on fuel searching for fish. You need the recent highest resolution images to not only know where to go, but where not to go. The knowledge provided by today's technology is critical when planning an offshore fishing trip. Make the choice that professional captains all over the Gulf make and choose Hilton's Real-Time Navigator. The easy-to-use interface and excellent customer service will have you on the fish every time you go. Check it out at hiltonsoffshore.com. All right, folks, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. And again, don't forget to text that code ALFFR to 779-345-2918. Get you that free AFCO Sun Protection Mask promo code and get added to our email list so that we can send you the new show each week. This week's episode of the Alabama Freshwater Fishing Report has been brought to you by Fish Bites. 
Whether you're hitting the sand with set rig or fishing the flats and marshes for speckled trout, redfish, and flounder, Fish Bites has something for you. Check out the full line of scented saltwater and freshwater baits at fishbites.com. And brought to you by Southeastern Pond Management. Since 1989, Southeastern Pond Management has been a leader in pond and lake management services. Schedule an obligation-free consultation today. Call one 888 830-POND or info at scpond.com. Also by L&M Marine. L&M Marine has something for everyone, from small hunting boats to pontoons to bigger bay and hybrid boats for the hardcore angler. You can visit them at 34600 Highway 59 in Stapleton, Alabama, or give them a call at 251-937-1380. Also brought to you by Killer Dock. KillerDock combines durability, function, and design to uniquely upgrade your entire dock experience. Visit KillerDock.com to see more.